So I'm Susan. This is Robert. He's the public speaker. I'm terrified. This is like breathing. It's a panic attack for me. We have had the same ongoing argument for 23 years now. Some of you may know that we met in Colorado at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. He was finishing up summer seminary classes. I was joining the staff of Campus Crusade. We met and it was just magical, fun. He flirted for weeks. And one day he got a anonymous note in his mailbox that simply said this, step up to the plate. He assumed that I wrote that, which I did not. Yes, she did. I did not. Yes, she did. I didn't. She did. Apparently some other girl did. No, she did. But I was committed to not manipulating the moment, but trusting God in the relationship, truly. And that apparently paid off, and he did step up to the plate, and here we are. One thing that we have always said is it's not how long you've been married, but what you've been through. And for us, 21 years has meant three cross-country moves, four cities, nine different houses or apartments, trips to Asia, Africa, Europe, three kids, babies, diapers, toddlers, tuition, Cars, computers, camps, college, braces, bruises, and a broken arm, thousands of sermons and suppers and counseling sessions, suffering and setbacks, ministry, marathons, midlife crisis, <laughs> the birth of a church, the death of my dad, and that's us. But here's what's true of you, every one of you, whether you're married or single, you have longings and you have limits. The longing is to be loved, to be known and to be loved. And that always is giving us a sense of wanting more. We're always wanting the next thing. If you're single, you want to be married. If you're married, you want to have kids. If you're married with kids, you want them to go. But it's just, never, it's just never enough for us. And consider Genesis 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And this is an extreme verse. It, it gives an extreme version of what happens in us, a longing that we have, but it becomes a demand. It's give me God, give me this or I'll die. And we're limited, so we have limits. How many of you feel inadequate? I don't know enough, I don't have enough. Inadequate to meet the needs of your family, inadequate to fulfill the demands of your job, inadequate to get past your past, inadequate to stay in a marriage. 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is adequate for these things? Who? None of us. 2 Corinthians 3.5, our adequacy is from God. He alone gives us what we need. And 
that has helped us just in love and in marriage um, is to know our limits, to admit them, to accept them, to surrender them. And it's in these limitations that we have found God to truly work and show up that it becomes a supernatural thing. And we want to uh, submit to you that this idea this morning, we'll probably say it a few times, but anybody can fall in love. Would you agree? I mean, anybody can fall in love. Uh, I, I think it happened to me in seventh grade. It was Farrah Fawcett. Uh, you guys remember Charlie's Angels? I mean, she, she had me wrapped. I was whipped with Farrah, the poster on the wall. It was uh, risky at the time, very conservative now. But the red bathing suit and Farrah Fawcett, I think I had fallen in love. It's easy to fall in love. Falling in love requires a heartbeat, but staying in love requires hard work. And for us, our beginning our second year of marriage, we had had a really strong first year, but a couple of bumps and a transition. And we coveted it together that we would work hard at marriage, that we wouldn't just drift with it or think that we could put it on autopilot, hear me, fellas, but that we would work at it. And we were at a conference, and we identified with some researchers. We um, learned about needs that were identified in both husband and wife. For a man, a man has five needs. Listen, I, I, this is stereotypical. They may vary at your house. It may be different, but I think it's very wise to hear this and to consider this. For us, it was pretty much spot on. But a man has five needs. Um, he wants a physically attractive spouse, sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship, domestic support, and respect. That's how a man is wired. I'm sort of manly. A woman is wired with five needs. And those needs include, the, those five needs are conversation, openness and honesty, family commitment, financial commitment, and romantic love. That is, I'm trying to avert some of the emails here. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm not suggesting that women aren't, you know, that they need a man. You, women, you don't need a man. Some of you are called to be single. It's called a gift. Use that gift. You can serve the kingdom greater. Marriage, marriage requires a lot. But a single person can have this gift. And women especially, you don't need a man. But I think the idea there, what the research showed, is that a woman wants you to work and wants you to be a provider and wants you to hustle. And that's that idea. We know several couples that we're dear friends with where the woman is smarter. She does have a better job. She makes more money. Uh, I would be happy if Susan would go do that. That would really, um, <laughs> it would help us. I'm praying for her in that regard. But we decided, yeah, we decided in year two that we were going to, you know, buy into that and that we would commit to each other to working to have those needs met, that we would, I would look at those five needs and that Susan has, and I would meet them, and she would do that with me. Now, you have to throw the scorecard away. We'll talk about that at the end, but we would work hard to, to meet those needs. So what have we said? Falling in love requires a heartbeat. Staying in love requires hard work. So here's what I want to submit to you. I want to go back to the beginning, not our beginning, 23 years ago when she wrote me a note to step up to the plate. I want to I want to go back to the beginning. Um, we calculated as we looked at calendars through the years that uh, I've had the privilege as a pastor of many many years of being able to perform weddings. And last weekend I hit my 566th wedding, and that's really cool. She can tell you it never gets old for me. Could you imagine doing something so often? But it never really gets old. I love to stand with a, a couple. 
with the listening ears of heaven and pronounce husband and wife and walk with them. I, I thank God for this woman on the front row, Laura McAlpin. Do y'all know Laura? How phenomenal is she? She helps, she helps equip couples to get married, and she's working with some small groups now to strengthen their marriage. She could be coming to a small group near you soon. But to stand at a wedding is an honor. But let's go back to the first wedding. God put a couple in the garden, and they, in essence, said, I do. And it was perfect. They had permanence and intimacy and exclusivity. They were together, but sin entered and sin shattered. Isn't that what sin does? When sin enters, sin shattered. And two people whose hearts were bent toward each other turned away. And in that, there became, bound up in them and in every heart since, a turning away from the other. It became a self-focus. And so I want to challenge you today with this. Susan talked about longings that we all have. She talked about the limits. And what she's saying there, I'm echoing that, is we have gotten to stretches in our marriage. We probably have some in the future where we just say, I'm not adequate for these things. She lives with me every day. I pastor this church. I say a lot to her. I'm not adequate for these things. And we point to what Paul said to the church at Corinth. He is our adequacy. You don't have what it takes, naturally. We are fundamentally incompatible. But he is our adequacy. So I want to talk to us today about moving away from self-focus into mutual submission. Do you hear that word, submission? Isn't that one of your favorite words? In fact, the Bible says, wives submit. How many of you just love that? Like that's a... You know, yeah, you, a couple of men raised their hand. Here's what I, I want to talk to the men, all right? The women, listen in. This will be valuable to you. But I want to talk to the men. Because for a lot of you men, that's the only verse you have memorized. Like, you don't know, you know, you know Jesus wept. You know God so loved the world. And you know that wives should submit. And you don't know what the other part of that says. So it's important to preach the word in all of its glory. And what it says there, what it teaches us, if you'll read past it, fellas, it really does talk about mutual submission. This isn't me being elastic. You know, preachers and teachers of the Bible get real elastic and creative when they're doing exegetical work. And this is like in there. You just have to keep reading it. You don't need to go to seminary. You just need to keep reading the passage. So it does say wives submit. But look what it says, Ephesians 5.33. This is the love and respect thing. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must res respect her husband. Isn't Paul brilliant? Like, he knows guys love themselves. He, like, we're dialed into that. Like, guys are really, we're really full of ourselves, aren't we? And there, there it is right there. But it goes on to say that we are to submit to one another. Hence, we preach at Fondren Church. And we talk, don't we, Laura, to every couple about mutual submission because that's what the bible teaches so listen to me men still talking to you what submission doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that it's a right to rule it means it's a responsibility to bear now that is a big difference when you say wives submit here's what happens wives get defensive and men get demanding and I just want to take that away, fellas, from your toolbox. That whole get demanding thing doesn't reflect Jesus. So in Ephesians 5, as we have in Genesis and throughout, there's, a, there's this thread that's woven, and it's real explicit in Ephesians, 
where there's imagery. This marriage represents something. So you know what? It'd be cool if we stay together and make each other happy for many, many years to come and one day die in each other's arms, you know, after we've lived long enough for, to be a burden to our children. Like that would be kind of cool, right? Like that'd be really awesome. But there's something bigger here. God has a plan bigger than our happiness and he wants us to bear witness to his glory to a watching world. Dreams get shattered. Homes get divided. Hearts get broken. We have to sweep up the broken pieces. You hear the language of that? And so God's design for our marriage is our oneness. But in this, there's symbolism. The husband symbolizes Christ and the wife symbolizes the church. And in that, I would say to you men, because I'm still talking to you, is your idea to demean her or to rule over her? Like, don't do that. Because Jesus emptied himself. In Philippians chapter 2, I quoted it a couple of months ago. I, I called it the be most beautiful Christological poem in Scripture. Philippians 2, 1 to 5, Jesus, who was equal with God, made himself less. He emptied himself and took on the form of man and entered into the space between us and the, the sin in our lives and God and his holiness. And he emptied himself. He's not, he wasn't full of himself. Jesus didn't walk into restaurants with his dues and be like, hey, that's my table there. Y'all need to get up. That's, this is our spot. He emptied himself. And let me ask you, do you know any guys that are full of themselves? Girls, are you dating a guy and he's got a reputation of being full of himself? Can I tell you, you may want to nod your head on this, but I mean, run. Like, be very, very careful. Some of you follow sports, and I'd like to forget a few games that were played yesterday, but the week before Vanderbilt had won a game, and we're talking football, not academics, but Vanderbilt had won a game, and they were so excited, and some of their fans, students, of course, probably had been drinking some adult beverages, they held up signs that said, we want Bama. And I remember thinking, they may not want Bama. Now, that, that's... Granted, that's next week's opponent, but they probably don't want Bama. And yesterday they played Bama and they got beat 59 to nothing. And fellas, here's what I want to say to you today. You're not Alabama. You're probably Vanderbilt. All right? Now, just live. If you're single and full of yourself, just live. This humbles and refines you. Jesus emptied himself. So college students, young people, those who are seekers of wondering about Jesus and the Christian faith and the power of the Bible, I want to tell you, this word submissive is nothing to be ashamed of. It's a glorious thing because you serve a God who emptied himself. And I have lived my life in selfishness. She'll tell you I still have a penchant for it. But I don't know a happy, selfish person. That's why I follow a risen Savior who shows me paradoxically that the way to be blessed is to pour out my life for others. Her and my family and this church. Paul said it, I pour out my life as a drink offering. So there's, there's what submission is and what submission is not. Two things I think, wives, that we display accurate submission is first giving him the gift of respect. And this is probably something, it makes me think of how women, as women, we talk about 
our husbands and our men in front of other people. An example of this for me is most of you know that Robert, or maybe you don't, but he's not a real great fix-it guy. Over the years, we've, we've learned that, and that's okay, but in public settings, when that subject has come up, I have learned this needs to be, this is my response. Robert does so many things so well. Fixing things is just not one of them. There's just a creative way to be able to build him up with being honest. And the second thing is giving him the gift of dependence. We don't have to be superwomen all the time. And notice, actually, these two things, I also want to say that they're gifts. So that does not necessarily mean that they are deserved all the time. But I think if we choose to give these gifts to them that God really does honor and bless. There's a quote that says, men withdraw when they feel unnecessary, but rise to the occasion when they're counted on. And I just think this is huge. There probably is many things as women that we are capable of doing and we can do. Like you said, we don't need a man but they need to know that they are needed at times. And so for us to be able to not feel the need to step in and control, which I think is a big weakness of all of us, but I think especially women, for me, it's important that I trust God in him more. And so that means removing myself a lot of times and believing that God is going to take care of it. And this is not so much a science as it is an art. This is like jazz. It's improvisational of learning to give, as she said, men this gift, the gift of respect and the gift of dependence. It's not saying be a damsel in distress. It's just, we're just saying, hey, we know some of you and we, we get counsel and we counsel and we know that there's a lot of women, uh, they're just supercharging, do it all. And it's a dance. And it, how do you, you know, because if you pull back a little bit and step back, wouldn't you say, then you give him an opportunity to step up. And it's why we do need groups. It's why you need to encourage your man to get in a circle, to get out of these, out of these rows and into a circle so that he can have a man to say, 1 Corinthians 16, 4, act like a man, be strong. Be on the watch. Look out and act like a man, be strong. Here's how you can strengthen um, your marriage. Here's how you can strengthen your heart. Here's, here's how you can lead your family by stepping up. But women, if you're always, you know, if he doesn't feel like he needs you, he's going he's gonna to withdraw. What's a woman's number one complaint in marriage? Number one, far and away, there's no close second. His passivity. He just won't engage. He won't engage with. So he can pastor a church. He can be a hard-charging CEO of a powerful company. He can be a head coach of a winning team. And he can be involved and lead people. And people, when he says jump, they say how high. But he can go home and he just gets low on the couch and doesn't lead and doesn't engage in any way with the family. So she's saying, challenging you as women to speak well of your man. Be careful even how you roll your eyes. Which I've done before. Yeah, that was a fight, I think, year three. But, um, 
just the nonverbals, but how you speak of your men. And we are pastoring you and maybe challenging you in a real particular way is to do better with that. To do better with that. Speak well of him and watch him grow into that. We are little boys on the inside. Just little boys. And letting them um, love us is so important and so needful. Some men, though, I want to say this about submission. There's two things, two more things that submission is not. Remember, it's not the right to rule, but it's a responsibility to bear. And it's also, it's not tyranny and it's not apathy. Some of the men, some men are bullies and control freaks. And their wives, they are easily angered and their wives and their kids have to walk on eggshells. That is so not Jesus. You hear me? If that's a pastor you knew or a dad you knew or an ex-husband you knew or something, that's too bad. I'm, that's sad and I am sorry. But that's not Jesus. Submission for men, it's not, it's not tyranny and it's also not apathy. It is not watching TV all the time. It is getting up and saying literally, no joking, honey, what can I do? And how can I engage here? And moving away from that silent type. And some men, honestly, were so overly mothered that that's what they're looking for. They wouldn't say it, but that's what they're looking for in their spouse. To plop down and let mama do things for them. And that's not what, that's, that's, you need a different pattern. We need a different pattern in our marriages. What has helped us <clears throat> is, through the years has been to build our home on who God is. To build our home on God's character, to let everything flow from that. She can tell you, when I'm having bad moments, I've got the character of God out of whack in my mind. I began to think that he's not for me, that he's not with me, that he is not there, that he does not care. Ever, anybody ever doubt or is it just me? And I get that out of line. And here's what I want to say. It's kind of, I was thinking earlier about, anybody see Will Ferrell, the movie Kicking and Screaming, where he's got his son he coaches a soccer team and he doesn't let his, he doesn't let his own son play on, on the squad. You know, and it's like, you know, dad, are you for me? Like, do you, do you love me? Are you with me? Do you want me in? And I want to say to you that we have a God. We have a God. You have a God who wants to do two things. Matthew 16, I don't have it on the, on the screen, but Matthew 16, familiar to some of you. There's a confessional. And Jesus is getting wildly popular. He's also you know, heading toward the cross eventually. But Jesus asked his guys, who do people say that I am? And there's the answer. Some say Elijah, some say the prophets, da, da, da. And he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? There's no more important question than you can ask, that you could be asked. Who do you say that I am? And y'all know Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A few of you, I think, are going to say that in baptism here in a couple of weeks. If you haven't been baptized by immersion after conversion, we would love to celebrate with you. But Peter made that expression, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, blessed are you, Simon Jonah. Blessed are you, Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And so we kind of take in that great confession. There's nothing, there's no greater confession that we can make. Because sometimes we love each other. Sometimes we want to sleep on the couch. Sometimes the feelings hadn't faded. They are paramount and it is ooey gooey good stuff. And sometimes not so much. But the most important confession that we can make is that Jesus is the Christ. That there's a higher plane and a bigger purpose for us and for this to exist. 
And we serve a God who wants to bless and build. Bless and build. When a president speaks, he will often say, or a politician will close a, a talk, he will say, God bless you and God bless America. If somebody sneezes, someone will say, God bless you. If you greet someone in public, a shopping clerk or something, when you're leaving, they'll often say, have a blessed day. Like we bless each other, don't we? There's something in us that says, we're all getting beat up. You need to be blessed. Well, God blesses. Isaiah 30, somebody needs to hear this today. It says that those who wait on the Lord will be blessed. Remember what she said, you have longings and you have limits and maybe you're waiting. You're waiting and you will be blessed if you wait on the Lord. Psalm 2 says those who take refuge in him will be blessed. James 1 says those who persevere in him will be blessed. Jesus gave the greatest sermon of all time. He said, blessed are those. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Those, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are people who are honest about their longings for love. Those people will be blessed. God wants to bless you. I want to ask you, whether you're single or lonely, whether you're in a marriage that's on the brink of something bad, or you're just kind of on autopilot, do you believe that your father wants you in the game, your heavenly father? Do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe that he wants to bless you? Do, you, do I believe that he has blessed this and wants to continue blessing this? And he wants to build. Beyond the blessing is the building. To Peter, he says, upon this rock, I will build what? My church. He, in Ephesians 4, it says that we ought to preach and teach and lead and love each other so that the church would be rooted in love and would be built up. He wants to build his church. He wants to build his kingdom. Psalm 127, we'll talk about this. We always do when we dedicate babies. But unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, like, he, he wants to build a home. He wants to build this. He wants to bless this. And so we want our marriage to flow from the character of God. But sin has entered. Susan is very sinful. Sin has, okay, I am too. Sin has entered into our marriage. And there is every couple has a space between them. Okay? There's a space. Some of you, Brent and Angie, Stan and Ramona, you're sitting really close to each other. There's not much of a space there. Like you're all over each other. But like there is a space. There's about two feet between Sue and I right now. But there is a space Every day, every moment, and it is open and pliable and responsive and reactionary. And in that space, things invade that space. And in Ephesians, where it talks about submission, mutual submission, husbands and love and respect and meeting needs and Christ being uh, who he is. It says that in Ephesians 4, get rid of... Of some things. Get rid of anger and wrath and malice and rage. Get, like, get rid of these things because they have no place. And isn't it crazy how things can enter into a space? And next thing you know, as I said, when sin enters, life shatters. And before you know it, you're fighting. And sometimes you're fighting often. And sometimes you're fighting ugly. And if you're fighting often and ugly, that's a bad deal. And Paul is saying, man, get rid of that. Well, how do you? And by the way, let me say this. What happens when we fight? I'll, I'll say to you two things. When, when we fight, it brings out your worst. Remember Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? This good physician drinks this, uh, this dangerous potion, 
and he becomes this hideous monster. And it's like, whoa, you were, so, you were like the good physician and now you're the ugly guy. And that's you and that's me when we fight. And in a marriage, when we let things enter in this space and we respond with anger and rage and fighting, it brings out your worst. Here's what I want to say. This is true in churches. This is why pastors have to pastor. It's why we have elders and deacons. And we want all of our leaders to be godly men and women. It's because when you fight, it brings out your worst. And it happens in churches. It happens in churches. And it brings out people's worth. People who used to believe in friendship are now snubbing each other. People that used to think forgiveness was a good idea are now holding on to grudges. People that used to tell the truth all the time, always, are now twisting it like a pretzel. Fighting will bring out your worst. And it will also, bystanders, suffer. We had friends when we were newlyweds in Miami. They came down to visit us from Canada. And we took them to a game at the Orange Bowl. And there, a fight broke out, like a real fight, in the stands. And security had to come in. It was dangerous. There was like bodies were broken and there was blood. And it was, it was, it was the worst thing I'd seen. And it was just like we feared for our safety. Those same friends came back a year or two later. I think it was the very next year. And we're like, hey, you want to go to a game? They're like, no, 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 no. No, I'm not going to that. Like, I'm not going there. And isn't that what ugly fights do? When you're fighting, you just don't want to go back. And so in this space, it's so important for us. Because what are we saying? Anybody can fall in love. Falling in love takes a heartbeat. Growing in love takes hard work. And the work that we need to do in an ongoing way is to be responsive to the space between us. And we need to get rid of some things. And get rid of some things. And get rid of some things that come between us. And the answer to this fighting, the answer to the getting rid of, is found in Ephesians 4.32. And if you're here today and I married you, some of you, a lot of you, I did your wedding... I quoted this, Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So I want, I want us to both close, but you remember this. In San Diego, we um, had one kid. Uh, this kid is in college now, and he, I told him not to, but he drove to Athens, Georgia for a ball game. And we still track him on our phone or her phone. So we found out he drove home last night. Him and his Sigma Chi buddies uh, got home at like 8 a.m. this morning. I bet he didn't go to church. But when he was our only child and a little boy, only child, little boy, he, when we moved to San Diego, he had a little friend, Gavin, that he was reunited with. And one day we're in San Diego on the beach, which is like, kind of like the Garden of Eden, okay? Nothing wrong there, just San Diego, 70 and sunny. And have you ever seen toddlers play? You have toddlers? Here are two little boys. And toddler play, observing it, is such a strange mix between tender affection and terrible wrongdoing. And in the space of a couple of hours, I, I was the chief watcher that day. They were sunning or something. But I was watching these boys, and RJ stole Gavin's shovel. And Gavin grabbed uh, RJ's grilled cheese sandwich. And one of them kicked sand in the, I don't remember all that, but they were kicking sand and they were, you know, yelling and they, you know. So think about what happened in the stretch of a couple hours. There was abuse, verbal and physical, covetousness, theft, slander. But what stuck with me, and it's why I'm talking about it 17 years later, is it, were, it wasn't the number of wrongs committed. It was the number of pardons offered. You want to guess what Gavin and RJ did, these two little two-year-olds? They ate together that night, and they laughed, 
and they went to sleep. Why do kids forgive so easily? It's not for any big spiritual reasons. They'd rather lose their pride than lose their buddy. And for some of you, it's painful because you're holding a grudge. And look, some of you have been rejected or you have rejected and that relationship is over. And I pray for God's grace, that divorce or whatever it is. I pray for God's grace and I pray that we as a church would be healthy and helpful to you. That you would feel the love. You are not less because you are not married at all. But it breaks my heart to see so many who have let those little things come into that space. And this space is so precious. Like God really cares for this space. Today we wind toward home by taking communion. So it's not like most Sundays where it's an open invitational prayer time. It's a time for everyone who confesses Jesus. You don't have to be a member of this church. Nothing formal. It's all heart. No letter of the law here. It's all spirit of the law. If you know Jesus as your Savior, we want you to follow the person in front of you to come to the bread that represents his body and the juice that represents his blood. And to say, Jesus, you have forgiven me. I have a Savior. I can't tell you what that does and how that empowers this relationship. Because I need to forgive her. And she needs to forgive me. We've had such a good week. I remember thinking yesterday morning, man, it seems like we ought to have a fight. Because every time we speak somewhere, we always have a fight. And, uh, and so it happened yesterday um, afternoon. But... Um, but we have a Savior, and He's forgiven us. And when something gets into that space, just as something has gotten into the space between you and God, between what is temporal and what is eternal, between what is petty and what really matters, between this life and next, a gap has been bridged. A Savior has emptied Himself for you. And that now we ask to be our act of worship, that you would come to the table, that you would do what Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. If you're married and your spouse is here, would you together claim that? I'm looking at the Pennebakers. Y'all know them? They've been married, Bob, how long? 46 years. And uh, I can't tell you how much I love them. Now, they are weird. He's an art professor, and they are weird people. Like, they do things strangely. But I, I, and he's proud of it, but I love him and I love Martha. And for six years as a church, they have either been here to lead communion or made sure we have the elements. And 46 years of marriage, all the Bob and Marthas, there's only a few of them, but just to say, hey, God is compassionate and tender. Think of all the times they've forgiven each other. So wherever you are in the journey, we are praying that God brings healing to marriages. And so don't leave today thinking two people sat up here and who have it together. Our adequacy, our adequacy comes from him. We have longings. And we have limits. And we bring those limits to him.
Anything to close on? I thought you'd tell them how awesome I am. Let's stand. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for a Savior. I thank